Psalm number one. We're starting the Psalter all over again. So here we go. This is the first Psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in the season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. All right, uh, we have uh, our sermon today, Exodus 4. It's uh, verses 1 through 9. Did anybody... Um, uh, figure out the uh, pictures of Christ in those. If so, I told you you could do the sermon. No, okay. We'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and do this. And this is entitled Three Signs to His People." And uh, we're going to go ahead and go uh, starting in verse one, chapter four, verse one. Then Moses answered and said, "But suppose that they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you." So the Lord said to him, "What is that in your hand?" He said, "A rod." And he said, uh, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord has said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out in his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. That it w then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. In our society, we need to not be foolish about taking people at face value. And I think everybody here knows that, but uh, it's important, especially with matters that are of great importance. Although it's nice to want to believe that people are honest, we eventually learn that it's often not the case, even with supposed friends. If we're in the military... How can we be sure that an order is valid that's been given? Well, there are ways of ensuring that it is. Many of them are written in prescribed manuals or in policies within the chain of command. Precautions are taken to make sure that traitors or impersonators don't step in and do the unit harm. And likewise, there are penalties for not making sure of the authority of an order before following through with it. For example, the My Lai incident in Vietnam showed us that very clearly. If we get a call on the phone about an overdue bill or maybe some unpaid taxes, before committing our credit card to that person, we should check the source, right? Who is allegedly making those claims? The IRS does not make telephone calls about unpaid taxes. Instead, they show up, your up at your door with the proper credentials, or they contact you through the mail on official letterhead. If someone came to your door and said he was with the IRS and that you owed them money, you'd be smart to ask for those credentials before continuing with the conversation. Now, if this is so for matters such as this, and I'm talking about temporary earthly matters, 
then how much more should we look for proofs in the most important matter of all, that of issues dealing with God, right? A perfect example of this comes to mind that happened this week. I don't know if you saw that uh, book, Heaven is Real. Somebody wrote that their six-year-old had gone to heaven. He wrote a book about it, made all that money off of it. People were continuously sending me stuff about that. And I said, I don't believe it. I don't believe in any of those type of visions ever. I just don't. We have the Bible. We live by faith and not by sight. And I don't believe in that kind of stuff. People send it to me and I tell them why I don't agree with it. And I say, this is going to be proven false eventually. And even if it's not proven false, I just don't believe it. And sure enough, this week it came out that it was a lie. The entire book was a lie. And what about the money that all those people spent on those books, right? It's stuff like that that just, we don't check. Read the book, compare it against the Bible and find out that it's really not true after all. And what happens? The majority of people simply put their trust in people without any substantiation at all for their faith. Talking about that with during the uh, Bible class this morning. A church right over on Siesta Key used to hold to the Bible. A pastor came in and all of the people just followed him. And now, now they're completely apart from the Bible because they put their trust in the person and not in the word of God. If someone came to me today and they said he talked to a burning bush and a voice from the bush told him that he was the self-existing God and he wanted me to follow that guy, I tell him that he needed a little bit more proof. Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormons, claims that the Book of Mormon was translated from golden plates that he obtained from an angel named Morani. All right, actually it was from a moron, but (laughs) eventually he says he gave those plates back to him though. So there's no plates to prove this. Now, is this something that we should believe at face value? If so, then the words of the Book of Mormon would be the testimony left behind because we don't have the plates anymore, right? But if that testimony contained faults, then it couldn't be what Smith claimed it to be. And we know that the Book of Mormon is filled with faults, archaeological faults. We can trace DNA now. These things show us that it's not a true book. There are many, many errors in the Book of Mormon that he has claimed are things that happened in history. Anyone who is simply willing to check the witness of the supposed sign of those golden plates will realize that it's not just a book with uh, errors in it, but that it is specifically argued against by the Bible, by the Apostle Paul himself. And yet people blindly follow along with Mormonism, and thus they condemn themselves to an eternity which is far different than the one that is offered by Jesus Christ. The same is true with many cults and a variety of other false religions and even denominations in Christianity, which, as I said, have departed completely from the faith. Our text verse today comes from Galatians chapter 1. It's verses 6 through 9. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want, you want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven, think of Joseph Smith and his angelic vision, right? If we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that, what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Moses was given three signs to show the people of Israel in order to confirm that his words were true. Those signs are recorded in the Bible, and it now witnesses to us of what those signs intended. We can accept that it is true, or we can reject it as a fairy tale. But if those signs are true, then they will be in accord with all of the rest of the word of God. 
They will contain the power of God and they will point us to Jesus Christ. Is this the case? Do they do these things? If so, then we can believe them just as if we saw them with our own eyes. This is the power and the word of God and it is the gospel message for all who believe. It is the power of God unto salvation and it is power which is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought is the rod of God, which is verses one through five. Then Moses answered and said, twice in chapter three, Moses questioned God concerning a selection of him to accomplish the task which is set before him. First in self-doubt, he asked this in uh, chapter three, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Then, after assuring him that he would be with him and confirm his spoken word to him, Moses next asked for a name that he could give to the people to prove that he was selected for the purpose. We saw that in verse 13, which said, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And thus he gave his divine name. After that, the Lord spent nine verses explaining his name and what would transpire as the task was accomplished. All of the detail necessary was given to provide this broad panorama of the coming exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. However, after this detail, Moses' first response is one which lacks faith in what is presented, as verse 1 continues. But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Rather than a question, Moses' words here are a statement of fact. Instead of, but suppose they will not believe me, is certainly, behold, they will not believe me. The words were not a question, but an emphatic and a preemptory statement. In this, then, is a contradiction by Moses of the assurance he was given in chapter 3, where the Lord said that they would heed his voice. There are several reasons why Moses would probably feel this way. The first is that he had already been shunned by his people once, 40 years earlier, hadn't he? Despite the years, the rejection would have still stung in his memory. A second reason is that the last time that the Bible records the Lord appearing to anyone directly was when Jacob was just about to depart from Canaan for the very last time, and that was 215 years earlier. Why would the Israelites assume that the Lord appeared to Moses, who didn't even live among them? And third, If the Lord appeared to him and told him that he would lead Israel out in a miraculous manner and by great wonders, then wouldn't he have proof of those great wonders? Isn't that something that he'd have? He'd have some type of evidence. Who would want to believe a person's claims when facing certain punishment from the people that they served? Despite the Lord's previous assurance, his lack of faith is not unnatural. The same word of the Lord which came from the bush, is recorded now in the pages of the Bible. Many of his words apply directly to us. They apply 100% and they are sure and they are reliable. And yet we lack the same faith almost daily as things pop up and they block the path that we're on. Moses was now expected to convince the people that his words were true. They'd already rejected him once and now he was claiming both their leadership and requesting their implicit trust. If we lose heart over faith, and matters which occur in our daily spiritual life, little things that happen to us, how much more Moses over the great challenge which lay ahead. 
He felt sure that if there was only a name and a promise from that name, that they would not believe him, even though the name was proclaimed from a bush, which was burning right in front of his eyes. He saw it. They didn't. He was sure it was not sufficient to present to them this story, and apparently the Lord agreed. Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? This does not mean that the Lord didn't somehow know that, you know, what, what he was holding in his hand. It was obvious. Instead, it is a response to and a preparation for answering Moses' lack of faith in the outcome of what he was told to do. This is the exact same thing that is seen other times in the Bible as well. In Genesis 32, for example, while wrestling with Jacob by the Jabbok River, Jacob said to the Lord, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Instead of simply blessing him, the Bible records this. So he said to him, what is your name? So he said, Jacob. The Lord already knew his name. The question was actually the beginning of the response. And the same is true here. By asking Moses what is in his hand, he is really beginning his response. Verse 2 continues. He said, a rod. In reply, Moses answers with the Hebrew word mate. It's a word used just over 250 times in the Bible, and it means a type of rod, a staff, or a shaft. But it also means tribe, such as in the tribe of Levi. In other words, the staff is emblematic of the tribe. If Levi has a staff, it is his symbol of authority. The tribe which branches out from Levi would be represented by the staff of Levi. In essence, it is comparable to what we know in in, you know, our English heritage as a coat of arms. This rod will reflect the power of the one to whom the staff belongs. As Moses has now been selected as God's representative for delivering the Israelites, his staff will be representative of the power of God. Because of this, the rod will actually, actually be called the rod of God in verse 20 of the same chapter. Verse 3, and he said, cast it on the ground. Moses has been shepherding flocks until this point, a picture of the church age during the time of Israel's rejection of Christ. After the rapture of the church, which was pictured in the first verses of chapter 3, the Lord will take on a new role in redemptive history. The attention is once again on Israel and the name of the selected leader, Moses, which means he who draws out is given to show us that Jesus will be the one who draws out his people in the end times. His role will be more than a shepherd, and so the symbolism is given here. Cast it on the ground. In ending the period of shepherding his flock, the rod will take on a new connotation. This is true for both Moses and for Jesus. Verse 3 continues. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. <laughs> the shepherd's staff becomes a serpent. In Hebrew, the word is nahash. It's a general word for snake or serpent rather than a specific type. This is the seventh time that the word is used in the Bible. But five of those times were in Genesis chapter 3 when speaking of the serpent who deceived the woman. This rod literally turns into a snake for Moses. There are probably three specific reasons for this particular sign to have been given. The first is that God knew that the Egyptians, through magic, could do the same thing with their rods making it appear that they had turned into snakes. In order to discredit their tricks as false, the rod of Aaron, which will came to carry the same ability as Moses' rod, will swallow the snakes of the Egyptians. In their attempt to discredit Moses, Moses will turn and discredit them. The second reason is because the cobra 
was the royal symbol of Pharaoh. If you know that, it was what adorned his headdress and thus reflected his supposedly divine power. The conversion of the shepherd's rod to a snake was then a sign. As Albert Barnes notes, at once a pledge and a representation of victory over the kings and the gods of Egypt. The third reason is because of who this Pharaoh pictures and from whom his power is derived. He pictures the Antichrist and his power comes, comes from the serpent who deceived the woman and who has continued to deceive the world throughout the ages. The devil is shown to be ultimately under the authority of the Lord. And so this is not only a pledge and a representation of victory over the kings and gods of Egypt, but it pictures the greater pledge of Jesus' victory over the devil and over the Antichrist. Verse 3 continues, and Moses fled from it. This verse literally says, Ve'yanas Moshe Mipanav, and fled Moses from its face. Being a shepherd, he would have known a poisonous snake from a harmless one. This was a poisonous snake for certain. It was one harmful in the extreme. But equally as concerning to Moses is the fact that his rod had actually changed. Rather than remembering that the Lord had told him to do this, his instinctive reactions took over. This then is an object lesson for Moses to learn to trust the Lord. Regardless of what else has occurred around him, no matter how remarkable it is, he is to trust the Lord. The giving up of his shepherding duties for the trial ahead would continuously expose him to dangers. By learning now that these dangers could not hurt him, he would know that there was no reason to flee before them. And this is also a good verse to show us that Moses is the true author of the account because anyone else would have certainly skipped over this portion of this verse entirely. It's a nice confirmation that Moses is the human author. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. This is set in contrast to what it just said. Moses fled from its face, and now he's told to take it by the tail. Anyone who deals with snakes knows that the best place to grab a snake is where? Right behind the head. Reach down and you grab it right behind the head. All right? If you grab a snake by the tail, there's a good chance of it turning around and it biting you. This is an instruction in faith building here. It is, in short, a picture of the Bible. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord says to us. There are things in the Bible that we are asked to do which often seem contrary to what we would normally expect that we should do. And when we do them, what happens? We find out that everything turned out just fine anyway. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to give thanks in everything. No matter what our situation or our level of hardship, we are asked to be thankful for it. This is certainly something contrary to the norm, but it is an exercise in faith building. This is what Moses is asked to do here. Grab the snake by the tail and trust that it will be okay. Interestingly, the word for tail here, I love to look at individual words, and sometimes I'll spend 20 or 30 minutes while I'm doing a sermon on just one word. And this is one of them. It's the word zanav. It is used 11 times in the Bible. In Isaiah 9, verse 15, the prophet in Israel who teaches lies is said to be the tail, the zanav. As the devil is the father of lies, which is in John 8, 44, this makes a picture of Christ's power over the devil. Verse 4 continues, And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. By faith in the Lord's word, Moses reached out and caught the snake, which once again became a rod in his hand. This rod of God, which is the symbol of the power of God, is a picture of Christ. He was first the power of God from eternity past. However, he abased himself and he came as a man. 
he was cast to the ground and he was crucified, becoming a representation of the snake, just as he said himself in John chapter 3. There he made reference to the bronze snake, which Moses carried in the wilderness, saying that just as the snake is lifted up, so he too would be lifted up. In that passage, the same word for snake, Nahash, is used, that is used in this verse right here. But through the power of the resurrection, he once again became the power of God for all eternity. First, he fled from the temptations of the devil, just as we're told to flee from the face of sin. Then he defeated the devil, and he returned to his position of power. Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. This is what is known as an imperfect or an unfinished sentence in Hebrew. The sign was given, and without saying it completely, Moses is told that they may believe. Our thoughts have to insert the finishing words, which would be, do what I have just shown you before the elders of Israel, that they may believe. This sign is given then not for Moses to believe, but for the elders to believe that Jehovah appeared to Moses, that he had been appointed as their leader, and that he would deliver them out of the bondage of Egypt. And finally, that Jehovah is, in fact, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How can we be sure that your word is true? What sign will you give us so that we can know? Why should we believe in and trust you? We look for a sign, a miracle, or a heavenly show. I have given you a sign, the devil I defeated. All who come to me are freed from the power of sin. There on the cross, all men I entreated. Heaven's gates I opened wide for any to come in. The work that I have done is recorded for you so that you can believe that I am the Holy One. I am the Lord, always faithful and true. For so long you missed that I am God's only begotten Son. Our second thought today is the leprous hand, which is verses 6 through 8. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. Although most people will instinctively get what is being commanded here, the NIV does a good job of putting in words that anyone can grasp. Though not a literal translation, it conveys the idea that's presented. And here's what they say. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. In essence, he is to take his hand and hide it in his garment next to his breast. Verse 6 continues. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. In following the word of the Lord, his hand became leprous like snow. The type of disease described here is always something that starts with a blemish and it progressively grew. The instant change from healthy to leprous would be contrary to any such known experience and the fact that it was only on the hand which had been hidden would make it all the more remarkable. Further, it was absolutely incurable. Thus, only the hand of God could be involved in what had occurred. In Numbers chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam will speak against Moses and the result of God's judgment will be most notable. There it says, so the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. The rod showed the vocation and implied the power of the individual. However, the hand holds the rod and wields the power. The leprosy, then, is a type of judgment as much as anything else. And so we continue. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. Moses was probably more than pleased to respond to this command. So he put his hand in his bosom again, and he drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. If the change from healthy to leprous was amazing, the sudden cure back to healthy would be astonishing. 
whereas the changing of the rod was a sign of divine power which credited Moses with authority. The changing of the hand was both a warning and a lesson for obedience to the appointed leader. As we saw, Aaron and Miriam failed to heed that, and Miriam received judgment. The granting of this sign to Moses was intended to show the dangers of resisting the Lord's command, but it was also a sign of assured deliverance for those who obey it. This second sign then also pictures Christ. The hand is a sign of power, particularly the right hand. Jesus, from eternity past, has been the one to wield the power of God. However, for a term, he came to dwell among us and he took on our nature. If the leprosy was a picture of sin and sin's resulting judgment, as we saw in that account with Miriam, then we can more clearly see his work. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes these words. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Just as Moses' leprous hand was a sign and a warning to the Israelites, even a plea through him that they be reconciled to God, so was the work of Christ. He took on our human nature and he died on a cross becoming sin for us so that through him we might be reconciled to God. After his work, he ascended to heaven, once again restored to his rightful position of wielding the power of God. It is a position for all eternity to come. In Christ, man is cleansed when he is obedient to his call. However, his sin and his judgment remains when he fails to heed it. This is all pictured in the sign which is given to Moses. Verse 8, Then it will be, if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. The word message here is actually the word voice. And so this verse more appropriately would say, it will happen, this is the world English translation, it will happen if they will neither believe you nor listen to the voice of the first sign that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. Throughout the pages of the Bible, it's noted that we can learn from God and we can learn from God's creation. And so these things are said to have their own voice. This is seen, for example, in the memorable words of David found in the 19th Psalm. Here's what he says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The day, the night, the heavens above us, the beasts of the field, and even the stones themselves will all have their own voice which cries out. This is what the Lord means in these words to Moses. The signs, not Moses, will first proclaim their voice to the people. All right? And seeing as how I'm bringing up the concept of the voice, I want you to know that if you don't read the daily um, Bible commentary that I send out every day, I started two days ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And that's specifically speaking on tongues. Are tongues appropriate in a church? What does it mean? What is the sign of that? And in there, Paul speaks of the voice. And that is something that I describe in there. That's coming in a few more days. So if you ever want to know about tongues and how to uh, defend what is correct in people's uh, you know, theology about speaking in tongues in a church, you can go to the Superior Word website. I post it there every single morning. You can read that. Or you can go to Facebook and you can read it on uh, a Bible verse that I do that do there. And if you need those links, just email me and I'll send them out. But 
The same voice in the Old Testament is spoken about Paul in the New Testament. All of the Bible is a whole, and that's where we get our theology, not out of select verses where we make up things out of our head. You want to take the Bible as a whole, and you'll understand what is proper and what is right concerning the speaking of tongues. The rod that uh, Moses has in his hand is actually shown to have its own voice elsewhere in Scripture. In Micah chapter 6, the same word for rod, which is mate, is said to actually speak to the people. Here's what it says. The Lord's voice cries to the city. Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. Hear the rod. Listen to its voice. As these signs have pictured the work of the Lord, they are a voice calling out for us to understand, to believe, and to accept his work all which is pictured by this encounter between the Lord and Moses. He has been called to be the leader of the people. As the Lord's messenger, he has been endowed with the power necessary to accomplish his calling. It is a perfect description of Jesus Christ. The just will live by their faith, it is true. It must be believed that the signs are from the Lord. The person, the work, the life given for you, it is all recorded in God's precious word. The cross is our payment for sin, because on the cross, Christ became sin for us. And thus over the devil, the victory he did win. Such is the marvel of the work of Jesus. How can it be that such love can be found? Love to amaze, dazzle, to astound. Our third thought, the water and the blood, verse 9. Verse 9 says, And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs. There is no record that they either accepted or rejected the first two signs. All it will say when Moses meets with them is the following from the end of chapter 4. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. As the Lord is all-knowing, and so would know whether the first two signs would be believed or not, then there must be a reason why he says this now, and why he will say his coming words in the rest of the verse. There is nothing which is uncertain in God. There's only pure knowledge and specific reasoning, such is the case with his word. It is given in a detailed way to show us more than just an old story of how Israel left Egypt, but a continuing story of how the future will also unfold. Verse 9 continues, or listen to your voice. The first two signs that were given had their own voice. They were fully capable of speaking the intent of the Lord to the people. However, Moses could add to that. One person can look up in the sky and they can see blue. And what do they see or what is the voice that they hear? Beauty. Another person can look up in the sky and see blue and hear God speaking to them of nice weather. Another person may hear that it's a good day to paint the house. All of these are the same voice from God's creation, which is speaking to individuals in various ways. However, there are other people who understand the reason for the blue. On a nice, clear, and cloudless day, the sky is blue because the molecules in the air take the blue light from the sun and they scatter it more than they scatter the sun's red light. Yes, the dust that we so dislike is what gives us our blue, blue skies during the day. At sunset, the red and orange is seen because the blue light has been scattered out, away from the line of sight. Like the blue of the sky, the people may hear the Lord's signs from Moses, but they may not understand them. 
But Moses could then add his own voice to the signs, explaining them and relaying to them his own experience from before the bush in order to convince the people of God's plan. However, they may also reject the first two signs and the voice of Moses as well. In this contingency, a third sign is to be given. Verse 9 continues, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. Right? The river spoken of is the Nile. It is with all certainty, and even to this day, the source of Egypt's continued life. Should God stop up the waters, what's going to happen? Only death would be left throughout all of the land of Egypt. The Nile then was a sort of deity to the Egyptians. It was the giver of life. The dry ground, or the Yabasha in Hebrew, is obvious. It is land which is without moisture. This word, Yabasha, it's used 14 times in the Bible, and the first two are in the Genesis creation account where the dry ground is brought forth from the waters. The dry ground is that which is in contradistinction to the waters then. Without the water, there is no life. And this is clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 44 when speaking of the reinvigoration of the Israelite people. Here's what it says. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground, the Yabasha. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing in your, on your offspring. What should happen when water is poured on dry ground is obvious. What will happen is unexpected. Verse 9 finishes with these words. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. It worked. You'll have to trust me on this, but I just ruined the carpet. Okay? <laughs> what should give life instead will give judgment. The land cannot thrive on blood. Instead, the land will remain dead. It is a picture of the Lord in his word once again. In him is the water of life. Isaiah, John, and Revelation equate the water with life and with the Lord. However, in the Lord, there is also judgment for all people. The judgment will be found in him for us or in us from him. But either way, there must be judgment for all who have sinned and all have, in fact, sinned. For the third time, a sign is given which points to the person and the work of Christ, his life and his cross. To the Israelites, the first sign, the rod, was given for those already disposed to right religion and seeking out the word of God. The second sign, the leprous hand, would act upon the fears of those not yet convinced, but who would become amenable to calling on God for safety's sake. The third sign, that of the water and the blood, was assigned to the rest who looked to the Nile as a god, but then realized that Jehovah, the God of Moses, was greater than this supposed giver of Egyptian life. He is the true giver of life. Again, the rod showed that a mere stick of wood could become a great power to destroy. The leprous hand and the hand made whole showed the ability to both punish and the ability to save. And the water and the blood showed that the world cannot count on all things continuing without correction. Peace and prosperity without God can only end in judgment, suffering, and bloodshed, a picture of the tribulation period. Finally, in these three signs are seen the three offices of Christ. The staff is emblematic of his prophetic office. He would come to proclaim the word of the Lord and to destroy the serpent. 
The leprosy is emblematic of his priestly office. He would come to cleanse his people of sin. And the third is a picture of his kingly office. He will judge the unrepentant world and their false gods through righteousness. Thus we see in these three signs, Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. According to E.W. Bollinger, the number three points to what is real, essential, perfect, substantial, complete, and divine. Surely in this description, it perfectly matches the giving of these three signs. In them, we see the perfect, full, and divine picture of the work of Christ for his people. Because of this, Moses himself makes a splendid picture of one working for the Lord. He has been entrusted with the word of God, just as Jesus is the word of God. He has been granted the power of God, thus reflecting Christ who is the power of God. And he is a God-sent prophet, just as Christ is the ultimate embodiment of the spirit of prophecy. He is our Lord. He is Jesus. Once again, in just nine verses, we've seen literally dozens of pictures of either the person of Christ or the work that he accomplished. Sure enough, as he told the people of Israel, all of scripture testifies to him. It is all about him, and it is all intended to wake us up to our need for him. God knew before the giving of these three signs as to whether the people would believe the first two signs or not, and yet he gave the third sign anyway, not because the first two signs may not have been believed, but because he wanted us to see the work of his son confirmed and established through the three of them. Obviously, if God gave such minute detail to these verses in order for us to see Jesus, then he really expects us to pay heed to them and to, con to the message that it conveys. And so as I do each week, I'd ask for just another moment to tell you the simple path to salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, and I say it every week, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We know that's true. Anybody that says that they haven't sinned, like that lady over in Australia we were talking about in the Bible class, is deluded. We have all sinned. A lie is a sin, and everybody has lied. And the people that say they haven't lied, guess what? They're liars, right? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And as I said just before we got started today, that's not just the death that we die at the end of our lives from being worn down by a life of sin. It's the death that came at the time of Adam when he broke God's commandment. And the spiritual connection between God and man was cut. And we're all born in that dead spiritual condition. What we need is to be reinvigorated, reanimated, brought back to spiritual life and the connection to God. And that can come through the blood of Jesus Christ. He was born without sin. He lived without sin, and he died without sin. And that's why he came out of the grave. If the wages of sin is death, and he was sinless, then death could not hold him. It was impossible for it to do so. He came out of the grave, and he offers us now in exchange. I will take your sin and nail it to the cross that I died on if you'll put your faith in me. And you will come out of the grave just as I did. It is as guaranteed as the chair you're sitting on or the hair on your head. It is absolutely certain that it will occur. There's no doubt about it. Because he came out of the grave, we will too. And he offers it by a simple act of faith. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I would ask that you would do that today if you've never done it. Call on Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Get that done with. And then pursue him all the days of your life by reading his word, studying his word, seeing, his how, it, seeing how it points to him, loving it, cherishing it, sharing it with others. And don't forget when you leave to take one of the tracks off the back wall and hand it to somebody else at the restaurant tonight, all right? 
get the word out because I believe that time is winding down very quickly. We're seeing it daily in our, our world around us. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 29. It's verses three and four. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. If the voice of what is created is filled with wisdom and knowledge, how much more the voice of the Lord who did the creating, right? Surely his voice is full of majesty. Next week is Exodus 4, verses 10 through 17. It's called Filling Life's Gaps. That'll be our 11th Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you this, as I do each week before we have our poem, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called The Voice of the Signs. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice instead. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you, and to this word no attention they pay. What then shall I do? So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod I use while walking on the land. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So on the ground it he cast and it became a serpent, so not hanging around, Moses fled from it really fast. Then the Lord said to Moses, he did submit, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. No longer did it flail. That they may believe that the Lord, God of their fathers, is who? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, to him, said the Lord, now in your bosom put your hand. And he put his hand in his bosom at that word in order to understand. And when he took it out, behold, what a show. His hand was leprous, white like snow. And he said, put your again in your bosom your hand. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, we understand it was restored like his other flesh, like that of normal men. Then it will be by this design, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign that you do. And it shall be, if they do not believe you, the sign from its giver, even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, another sign, another choice. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So they know that of life I am the giver and that I am he who judges. This too they will understand. Three signs given for Israel to see and believe, and the signs testify to the work of the Lord Jesus. Let us refrain from lies in order to deceive and hold fast to the word which God has given to us. Thank you. Yes, thank you, O great and awesome God, for the marvelous treasure, the superior word. It is radiant. It is a radiant light for the path on which we trod, and it leads us to the loving arms of Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for these uh, wonderful stories that you've placed in your word. And so many of the things you could have skipped over and we'd still understand the story. So the detail must be there for a reason. And sure enough, it is. The reason is always that it's always that we, you want us to see Jesus. You want us to see his work. You want to see us to see his person. You want us to understand your love for us because of what he did. And you also want us to understand that you're just and righteous and holy and the judgment is waiting if we don't turn from the things we're doing. 
but there is healing and there is cleansing in him. And so you've shown us both paths and you've asked us to take, to, take the right one. Help us to do that. Help us to take the path which leads to you, to the rock which is far higher than we are. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for this word. We thank you for the chance to pray for the others that, have, uh, that are sick and that aren't here today. And we thank you for the chance to uh, uh, support missionaries out of this little church and to uh, uh, fellowship with others and to study your word throughout the week and all of the things that you do, all that you've given us, we thank you. Please hear our praises, hear our prayers of petition, know that we are pursuing you as best we can and help us to just continue to do that until you come for us and may that day be soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. The uh, instruction for the Lord's Supper, as you know, comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, that's from the hand of Paul. And he wrote us these words for us to consider. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said this, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we do have uh, Kelly Carlin's mother who's sick, and we'd uh, want to pray for her right now. Pray for uh, Kelly, who does not like missing church, and I appreciate that in her, and uh, I pray that uh, she'll be able to attend on YouTube or at some other time during the week, and uh, uh, we pray for Anne, who's not feeling well today, that she would uh, get back to health soon. And uh, we also thank you in our prayers for Elaine and for Heather, who are having birthdays this week. And uh, uh, we would ask that you would just bless them in their uh, next year of life. And uh, Lord, anybody that's uh, traveling or that is uh, uh, going to be traveling, we would ask that you would take care of them and uh, uh, help them to have a good time, but a safe time. And we thank you for the opportunity to lift these people up in prayer and to uh, fellowship with them and to be a part of their lives. We love you. We praise you. We look forward to another week in your presence. No matter what happens, good or bad, we'll be sure to uh, remember that you are God and that you are due our praises and our thanks always. And so we'll give it to you, and we'll give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.